automotive really slowed down, and Tier 1 really slowed down for all of the companies like us. And there was lots of despair, I think, of people, you know, gnashing of teeth and wailing. But I think that's when our company thought, well, what, uh, where else can we go? What can we do? I don't know if you need to wait for that moment. I think that, you know, maybe you need to keep your eyes open all the time and say, what, what will happen next? It looked kind of like David cutting apart N95 masks in his living room at the beginning of the pandemic, recognizing that there was going to be a need, like a new market, and whoever can get there can have it, so to speak, right? They can be a player in that market. So. Hello and welcome to another episode of Making It in Ontario, the official podcast of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. I'm your host, Nick Persichilli, and in this episode, I chat with Scott Magnish, Head of Communications at Windsor's own Harbour Technologies Incorporated, to discuss what life is like after a traditional automotive supplier decides to look for work outside of auto. What opportunities exist out there, and how do you hunt them down? While they still manufacture for automotive, the past few years have seen them expand into nuclear, aerospace, as well as PPE manufacturing. Now, let's be clear, Ontario's automotive manufacturing industry as a whole was is and will continue to be a hotbed of manufacturing innovation, will continue to be a global leader in quality manufacturing, and will continue to be a source for great jobs for thousands of people across this province and nation. This episode is not an instruction manual for shifting your operations away from automotive manufacturing. It's a case study in taking the skills and competencies gained from years of competent work in one industry and applying them to other opportunities. So how does one find these opportunities? Well, sadly, the answer is nothing crazy. You just got to do the work. You got to attend the networking events. You got to meet people and tell them all about your company. You have to get in the room, just like any other industry. But once you're there, as Scott tells us, you're there and you can get to work. And sometimes opportunities come screaming at you like they did when Premier Ford made the province-wide call for desperately needed PPE at the outset of the pandemic. Check the timestamp for the discussion about how one of Harbor Tech's owners was cutting open an N95 mask to see how they were made and the innovation that came from this. Long story short, the company has patented a process for making surgical gowns with something called a welding horn. It's very innovative. Do check it out. HarborTech has proven its ability to pivot to market demands and set their own course in the advanced manufacturing ecosystem in Ontario. But perhaps the most compelling bit of advice that Scott gave in the interview is that you don't need to wait for a global crisis or shifting market demands to make a pivot. Get out there and look for opportunities. As long as you know your capabilities and you know your people, there are no shortage of opportunities for manufacturers who want to keep on making it in Ontario. So, day two of the Windsor trip. Here we are in a new place with a new friend. Would you please introduce yourself? Hi, it's uh, Scott Magnish, uh, Harbor Technologies. Hello, Scott. Nice to be here today. You swore up and down when we first started that you weren't an interesting guest. So now I'm going to pick on you. So I'm going to, actually, no, I'm not going to pick on you yet. I am going to say, let's talk about Harbor Tech. Tell us a little bit about the place we're in today. So Harbor Tech uh, is a 50-year-old company, actually 50 years this year. And it started out uh, is a third gen. Well, we're, it's a third generation company, uh, and it started out really focused on automotive, probably like most shops like this in in the Windsor area. Back then, it was it was all about parts for you know tier one automotive and big three, um, auto, uh, automation, which was a big part of the company's business too, building machines for those companies. But we've evolved from there. I would say probably as the last. Um, 
set the rest of the last century ended and this one began, we started focusing more on, on nuclear. And so today, nuclear actually makes up a big part of uh, the work we do. Aerospace, defense, the, the defense part is really interesting. And uh, most recently, medical. So when the, the pandemic hit, we became very focused on building machines to make PPE. Because as you know, the, the country was in dire straits. Um, that We had the prime minister and the, and the premier both asking manufacturers to do that. So we did. And amongst other machines, we built the world's first uh, fully automated isolation gown manufacturing cell, which we're pretty proud of and which has proven to be very successful in the market last year. This year and last year, we made four and a half million gowns for the Canadian government. Yeah, it's cutting edge technology that we think will help reshore jobs and manufacturing from overseas because, you know, finally, I think we can compete uh, in this, this market space. See, this was the reason I wanted to talk with you guys today, because you're one of those companies that has managed to find life after auto. I mean, I'm sure you, you guys are still in, in auto, right? Yeah, we do some. Yeah, okay, we so, do some. But there is life after auto, and especially in Windsor. I know that there has been a, an auto mobility push. Tell us a little bit about what it's like for manufacturers who are deeply seated in auto to go outside of auto. What are some of those challenges? For us, I don't think there was a huge challenge, and it's probably because of the mindset of the leadership in the company. So maybe the first step was, it was long before I was with them, but you know, if you think about what we do as, as a company, as a, manuf- as a custom tool, uh, machine, and uh, automation company, that's a specific skill set. And the equipment on the floor, it's probably very similar to the equipment on the floor of all the shops throughout Windsor who do this kind of work. So really, you know, you can make a part for automotive, but you can make a part for nuclear too. Uh, you can make a part for aero, you can make the part for anybody. So I think what it takes is uh, maybe a different sales approach, getting out to trade shows, making those connections in other industries, and then being able to demonstrate that you can do the work. So as an example, we do, we've do we done some pretty exciting work in the defense space. And that's as a result of work we do with composites, which is very different than some of the stuff we do for nuclear. So, you know, it, we, we make parts, when we make parts for nuclear, it's very often, you know, steel or aluminum. Um, sometimes it's shielding, you know, radiation shielding. Whereas in the defense world, the project that we just finished was building a composite suspension system for a next generation tank. Wow. So it was pretty exciting because it was probably the first time the company had revisited the design of a vehicle like that since the Abrams tank. So this was in a fully autonomous electric powered tank and kind of equipment that needs to be deployed probably by helicopter. So it has to weight is a big concern. And they were looking to shave weight off of the vehicle without compromising performance. And so what we did was design a composite suspension system, uh, leaf springs, bogey wheels, the, the whole thing. Well, the bogey wheels weren't, uh, weren't composite, but the suspension systems were to help them accomplish that. So that vehicle is actually out there in the world. And we do the same thing for uh, uh, special forces vehicles. We make things like carbon fiber oil pans as an example and again it's it's around weight savings for vehicles that are being deployed by helicopters probably being left in the 
the field after they're after they're finished doing their job. It's kind of a, it's an exciting place to be in. So we're go, going full, coming back to your original question then. So how do you do that? Well, the composite thing was, I guess, a little bit different. Most shops haven't embraced that, although there's lots of companies out there who do do composite. But how did we get into nuclear? I think it just took, we went to nuclear shows. We joined organizations. We talked to people. We knocked on doors. We all had to do that for automotive too. So I think the more, I guess the moral of the story is you can't just sit and wait for them to come to you with work. You kind of have to go out and look for it. But the skill set, other than that, it's the same work. You know, you're machining parts. You're putting steel in a press and drilling it. You're you're using a CNC machine to make something to the customer specs. So it's all the same. Right. You did the work. You went out. You pounded the pavement. You, you did the work. Well, I didn't do the work. Other, <laughs> other people did that work. I, my work's a little different. Scott, tell me a little bit about, you, you kind of just quickly touched on it, the, the, the philosophy of the owners. Tell me a little bit more about that, because it sounds to me like when the owners have have a philosophy, it usually leads to some pretty interesting leadership. Tell me a little bit about the philosophy that they have. Well, so first of all, I, I should say the um, David and Andrew Glover uh, are brothers. So it was their father and grandfather who started the company. I asked David once, what was the best job he ever had? Or I actually asked him what was the worst job he's ever had, because I've had a lot of jobs. So he says this one, which I laughed at, but then he said it's also the best job I've ever had. So with that in mind, when I asked David, when I first started working here, and I I was trying to get a handle on what we do, because we do so many different things, he says, I tell a customer, I tell people, if it doesn't exist, if, if you can't find it in a catalog, if it's not online, it does not exist, he goes, that's when you call us. And so I think they've taken that at the heart, of, that's the heart of their philosophy, is that we can do it. In fact, we just designed a trade show booth. Um, that's actually why the Andrew isn't here. He's uh, in London at a trade show. But the, the slogan on the booth says, imagine that we can which I thought we thought was pretty catchy, but it's very true. People come to us with their challenges within, you know, their industry. They, they need a cart to hold a part. It could be a jet engine or something like that. And so they need somebody to help design it. When I was talking about the tank, they said, here, this is what we're trying to do. How would you do it? And so we, you know, sat with their engineers, worked with them. The same was with their, our medical division now with the, the robots that, so we have a, a little army of robots making uh, isolation gowns. And is that here? No, that's in Chatham. Oh, okay. We had to sit down. We sat down with, you know, the Kawasaki. They use this Kawasaki robots, but uh, the magic there is in the marriage of technologies. So the ro- it's, it sounds like it's science fiction, but the robots are equipped with ultrasonic welding horns and lasers that cut the gown. So we can cut and weld and make a finished gown now in under 60 seconds per robot, which is pretty exciting and also kind of cool. Can you explain welding in, in gowns? What, what, what do you mean by that? So isolation gowns uh, are made out of polypropylene, which is essentially a plastic product. The material we use is called an SMMS, a spun bond, melt blown combination. So it's breathable, but it is at its heart a poly product, right? So it, it's your kit, you can weld or melt it together, essentially. So typically what happens is in overseas manufacturing scenarios, somebody will actually cut out the shape of the gown and then sit and sew it or, or weld it on, a, on what looks like a sewing machine, weld all the seams. Process takes usually around two minutes if they're really competent. So our robots, as I said, do it in about 50 seconds. So it welds very quickly. Um, and it's the marriage of all those technologies together that 
I guess, led to the success of that particular project, but it was working with different experts, I guess, to say, you know, what robot should we use? How do we develop this horn? What cuts best? We've gone through all kinds of different generations of tooling on this to, to get to the perfect, the perfect scenario. So that's incredible. Tell me a little bit about the work in nuclear, because I myself came from automotive and I understand that business. I understand that world, that market. What are some of the differences in a nuclear component versus a, an automotive component? So there is extra hurdles that you have to clear as a manufacturer to supply nuclear facilities, because if you design a bad automotive machine or tool, production could stop. They might be angry. It might cost them money. But if you design a bad nuclear part, there, there's a whole level, new level of pain there. Um, I would imagine. Yeah. So, uh, first of all, the standards, the ISO certifications have to have to come up a couple notches, right? There's uh, some very specialized work that they do, and it's it's not just your average custom tooling or machining work so it's just it's a little different than let's say some of the other machines we make like we built a n95 mask machine definitely not as sophisticated as some of the work we do in nuclear some of it's pretty boring too like i we make carts that they can transport nuclear waste on we make parts i sometimes i think we don't even know what the part is we get we get schematics and we make these brackets and things there's a just all kinds of different work and a lot of it is i guess replacement replacing parts that were made a decade ago and in fact we're seeing a lot of that in nuclear where there seems to be an uptick in in opportunities uh asking for more us to quote on more jobs and i think a lot of this is refurbishment of existing nuclear plants in in ontario and elsewhere too, Candu reactors. We the work with a lot of the work we do is around the can. Well, all of it is around Candu reactors, and they exist elsewhere in the world. We actually had a team in Korea at one point. They have a Candu reactor there. So one of the common themes that I bump into over the course of this podcast, over the course of my work with Trillium, is the challenges that manufacturers have in attracting talent. I, I find that with the with the rare exception of a few people I've spoken to. All of them say the same thing, which is it's a challenge to find talent. It's a challenge to keep people in the Do you have that challenge? And if so, tell us about your HR hiring. How do you fill your talent pipeline? So it is, it's a challenge here, too. And I, I think it's a challenge because there's so many people or organizations in this part of Ontario competing for the same talent. And then the second part of that equation is there is an ever, it seems to be an ever dwindling supply of new machinists it doesn't seem to be attracting the 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 students the young people as like it used to be so there's a i think a lot more older machinists let's say looking towards retirement than there are new machinists looking to get in the business and then you look at a second issue here which is it's interesting because it's good it's good and bad i actually was saying this to the minister of uh Minister of Tourism, but also the he's the Deputy Minister of Finance in Canada last week. We were, the battery plant. So the battery plant obviously is a big, exciting project for Windsor. Definitely positions Windsor, I think, to continue in automotive because that seems to be the future of automotive. But the, the challenge we face there is just there's already so much competition for those same jobs. Where would you like to work? At the battery plant or... Like I think the battery plant is a draw, and, and so it's going to be even that much harder, I guess, when when they when they actually 
get to the point where they have a plant when they you know have something built but also the plant isn't going to be full of machines built here they've already sourced out they have other plants in the world you know they're going to adopt the same manufacturing processes they're probably going to buy exactly the same equipment and and so it's not going to help companies in Windsor we're not going to get a whole lot of work out of the new battery plant we might get work when those machines start to break one day but in the short term it's probably hurts the local industry more than it helps in those respects, right? Construction, yeah. I, I mean, certainly it's, it's a boon for the construction companies in the area, but not the custom tool and machine shops like us. So where do you fill your talent pipeline? Where do you go fishing? We get a lot of people um, lately anyway that come from completely different backgrounds. So as an example, the plant supervisor we have in Chatham where the robot farm is making the isolation gowns. He actually was a ballet star. In, yes, seriously, in the States. And uh, I guess he injured himself and couldn't perform anymore. Comes back to Chatham where he has family. And, and we had originally hired him just to help fold and box isolation gowns. But he's like, he's a great guy and works hard. And so now he's the plant supervisor, which is exciting, but again, pretty unusual career path, right? You know, we were talking earlier, I, I, I have a pretty unusual career path. So I was going to ask you about it. I, I know you were. I uh, So during the pandemic, when uh, I left my communications job, I, I called up David, who is a friend of mine, and said, hey, can I help you pack face masks or isolation gowns I you know I'm looking for a job and so he says why don't you just do what you do so I I said okay and that was two years ago so I'm continue to do what I do and when I walked in here I had no idea what we did I just I just saw lots of machines and lots of steel but I had heard stories you know where they had talked about some of their initiatives like as a matter of fact it's interesting because I I knew that they did masks face masks and uh and gowns but I remember when the as the pandemic started, being at David's house one day, and he is, he was sitting there cutting apart N95 masks to see how they were made, like what the what was the composition, and quite like literally, yeah. So quite literally, from that, they designed machines to make them, and, and then they designed a, a new machines to make them, and then we got into the robots. But it, it's that kind of almost experimental, investigative approach to to the business. And I think that's a little unusual. I don't think a lot of companies do that. So yeah, very they do pull from different areas of expertise, different people's uh, skill sets, and it, it makes for, I guess, an interesting mix. Maybe maybe because they're, the staff approach things or see things with a different lens, and that might be part of it. I'm not sure. We definitely need machinists, though. So if you're listening to this and you're a machinist, you should call Harbor Technologies. Yes, you should. And get in, And if you are a machinist and would like to get in touch with Harbor Technologies, get in touch with Trillium, and I am happy to connect you. This seems like a very cool place to work. Now, Scott, I am going to ask you a little bit about your former career path, only because it's interesting as heck. Okay. And, yeah. and it's just, it's interesting that someone like you wound up in manufacturing. And I think that we've got, you know, a former ballet dancer. We've got a former journalist who he's going to tell you about that in a sec. I think it's a really interesting story. Give us the quick, uh, the quick rundown. Okay, so I started out in life uh, as a teenager wanting to become a journalist. And I saw the fastest, uh, or at the time I believed the fastest way to do that was just to go 
and cover a war. So I sold all my teenage stuff and I bought a ticket to Nicaragua and I set out to cover the conflict there between the Sandinistas and the Contras in the 80s, which I did, although the, the, the real journalists, I say with air quotes, even though I was sort of doing okay, uh, they kept urging me to go back, come home and go to school. So I begrudgingly eventually did that and then started working uh, for Sun Media Corporation. I still had the bug of covering international travel and, uh, and all that, so I convinced them to send me to uh, the former Yugoslavia uh, to cover the war there in the, in the Balkans in the early 90s, and then came back, covered everything else, did a lot of investigative work. In fact, I did some undercover crazy stuff with white supremacist groups around the same time. It's a longer story, but... <laughs> I, uh, I'll bet. I eventually, I eventually uh, I got offered a job working for the mayor's office in Toronto, and it just seemed like a, a good time to take a pause from journalism. I, you know, it, it turns out my timing was good because that was really, I think, when the tides changed for journalism as an industry. It certainly is a shadow of its former self today and fraught with all kinds of challenges. But uh, So it was good to get into communications when I did. From there, I worked for the province for a while, and then I got into healthcare communications, which landed me here. And I think it was interesting because some of the experience I had in healthcare on big projects, I think equipped me with some some skills, I think, necessary to help with the personal protective equipment market and understanding how government works, you know, and media for that matter too. I mean, part of the reason that we enjoyed these kinds of things is because the company's good at promoting itself, which we do through media. So, you know, we're, we're always uh, looking for a story angle here that we can take out to publications, whether they be online, whether they be television, whether they be, you know, and, and try to get our story told. That's part of what I do. You know, in an ever-changing media landscape, we've had a lot of success with YouTube videos. So a lot of companies found our, found us uh, through exposure on YouTube. So Scott, what advice writ large would you have for, let's say it, a traditional automotive manufacturers? looking to diversify their manufacturing portfolio. I do think that the secret lies in, this sounds cliche, but looking beyond your horizons or beyond your borders, because borders are the construct of just where you think the line is. You know, it's um, kind of like a real border. Like really, you know, if you think about the border between Canada and the United States, it's just an imaginary line. I mean, it means a lot of things to people, but it can change. It's certainly changed a lot in U- Ukraine recently. So if we look at, take that it, and look at where we are as manufacturers and you say, well, I'm an automotive manufacturer. Well, you don't have to be. In fact, you gave that title to yourself. It might be what you do right now, but it doesn't have to be what you do tomorrow. You know, you probably identify with this, but when you're a journalist and then you stop being a journalist, sometimes you go through a bit of an identity crisis. You know, we say, well, what am I now? I used to identify as, well, you're not your job. So your company is, a company is, I think, similar. You're not an automotive tool and machine shop. You're just a tool and machine shop. You can do anything. Quite literally, you can do anything, right? You can build anything. It's really whatever you can imagine. So somebody had a vision there. Somebody looked ahead and said, you know what? This is going to be... A market for us you know we can do this we, if we make the right steps get the right accreditations you know talk to some industry people and ask how how do I what do I need to, to sell to SNC Lavalin how do I get a meeting with somebody up at Bruce Power but it doesn't have to be nuclear like and in fact probably don't do it because there's enough players already in nuclear <laughs> you kind of find, gotta find the next one so for us got started getting into aerospace 
non we build non flying parts like we did with uh, defense. It took about ten years, I think, for our company to break into the defense world. It's really really challenging. But once you're there, you're there. It's kind of like automotive was for people for a long time. And, you know, we should probably speak a little bit about why we took a step away from that as a core business. Please, too. Yeah. yeah. I think it was because I think it was around the recession. Automotive really slowed down. And tier one really slowed down for all of the companies like us. And there was lots of despair, I think, and people, you know, gnashing of teeth and wailing. But I think that's when our company thought, well, what, uh, where else can we go? What can we do? I don't know if you need to wait for that moment I think that you know maybe you need to keep your eyes open all the time and say what, what will happen next. It looked kind of like David cutting apart N95 masks in his living room at the beginning of the pandemic, recognizing that there was going to be a need, like a new market, and whoever can get there can have it, so to speak. Right? They can be a player in that market. So, yeah. So what's next? I don't. I don't know. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. I think we're pretty busy right now with the, the gowns. We're looking to expand the United States. So here's an actually an excellent example of what I just talked about. So, so we have this technology. We built these robots. We successfully completed a very large federal contract. What do we do next? And, and where, does, where do the conditions exist where we'll thrive is actually a good way to put it. So looking to the states, we were very interested in trying to break into the U.S. market. It turns out it's very challenging because of F the FDA regulations, which aren't insurmountable, but they definitely are a challenge. So we were in the process of trying to get our level three isolation gown, get it approved, get a, what they call a 510K for the FDA. But if you make a level two isolation gown, it's exempt from FDA scrutiny. So level two and level one are considered a class one device in the United States, the FDA doesn't care. The, uh, they still have to be made to certain standards, but the level of oversight is lower. So then along comes uh, in April, the 100% Made in America PPE Act, which Congress passed, and all of a sudden, any federal contract for PPE has to be 100% Made in America. Every single part of that product, from the raw materials to the manufacturing to the packaging. So now you say, oh, okay, aha, this is pretty interesting, because one of our biggest challenges with isolation gowns is competing with overseas because they can make isolation gowns far cheaper than us because of lower wa uh, lower wages, less oversight. You know, there's uh, a whole host of reasons why it's tough to compete. Our advantage is obviously automation, which is a North American approach to a lot of these solutions, kind of what Henry Ford did, right? And now we have in America an environment where everything has to be made here. So who can compete? with us because nobody else has robots. So we're in a pretty unique situation now. And then after that happened, an RFP came out from the Uncle Sam, the federal government, for 75 million isolation gowns a year for the next couple of years. So we're clearly, we're interested in competing. We never would have been able to do that if we hadn't made all the steps prior to. It took a while to get to that position, but now we're there. So what's the next step after that? Uh, we look towards the Ontario government. So in Ontario, the premier announced, I guess back again in April or May, right before the election, that uh, Ontario was going to take the lead in provincial pandemic stockpile, strategic stockpile of PPE equipment, right? So we're anxiously watching how that's going to come together and play out. But we're not just like we're not just sitting back watching. We're very aggressively trying to seek meetings with bureaucrats, get meetings with ministers 
meet with our local MPPs to make sure they understand how interested we are in this as a local business and what it could mean for the region in terms of jobs and all those sorts of things. So it's not a passive approach. It's, it's a, a very friendly but aggressive, aggressively pursuing the information that we need so that we can be in a position to compete on that RFP head-to-head with other companies. Obviously, we're not asking for a, them to sole source it, but that's all pretty important. On another podcast episode, I interviewed, maybe you know him, Jonathan Azapardi from Laval Tool. I don't know him, but I'm sure the guys here do. Okay. So that episode focused on historically automotive manufacturers, but the idea of constantly chasing scale. And he said he's he hates chasing scale. He wants to run from scale. He wants to use technology to bring costs down. And it sounds to me like that's kind of what you guys have done. Is that fair? It is in multiple ways. So... Yeah, technology certainly, I think, plays a role in what we do. We're in a process right now of um, sort of revitalizing the, the equipment on the plant floor. So we've got some new machines in there, got a new plasma cutter, which is exciting to watch. Technology, though, certainly is, is a game changer for us in the medical field because of the equipment. And normally, you know, this is another thing that I guess to consider is normally we just built mach- we built solutions for our customers and then built another solution for a new customer and another one and another this time we built a solution for ourselves so while our technology our isolation gown manufacturing cells are technically for sale we would definitely can talk to people about that if they wanted to try to replicate our operation not exactly sure how that would look but it wouldn't be it's not necessarily a cheap proposition because it took a lot to do this but we built it for ourselves and we're running it ourselves so we've made a switch here as a company from supplying solutions to customers to actually manufacturing we're manufacturing a product the same product now over and over millions and millions of times right that's different for us so there's a learning curve there too very different manufacturing is different than what we have done here previously because it's very often low volume high quality parts so what we've changed that now in the manufacturing where it is high volume and high quality too but because of the technology so going back to your question yeah i think technology certainly is something that we're leveraging as as much as we can but maybe in a different way for us it's we're leveraging the technology on the manufacturing side of things does that make sense it very much does yeah absolutely and and that's that that that's that's kind of it I mean, chasing scale is fun, and I mean, sort of certainly once you've caught it. Yeah. So, I mean, we do a little bit of that. There's, we make some parts that, you know, it, it, but it's... Um, There's life after scale, right? I believe so, yeah. Probably a better life. Uh, yeah. I mean, it seems that way because it's just, I understand that, you know, w- once you get that, the scale contract, it's just control C, control V, control V, control V, control V, and every time you hit control V, you get paid. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a little addictive, wouldn't it? it? That sounds like an addictive sort of construct, no? It sounds to me kind of boring, too, for the employees, though. Yeah. Right? Like, I, one of the things that I would like to think helps in, in re- employee retention is new and interesting jobs. And I kind of see it. So I share an office with some of the guys, like the plant manager and guy who does uh, all our quoting and one of our engineers. And... It's interesting to, to see the machinists come in and talk about a different project and how they're going to approach it. It clearly is challenging 
Like there's new challenges every day. And so I, I think they must like, I think they like that. I would if I did their job. If you can make a, a million of anything, uh, you probably get to a point where it's very profitable, but also real boring, which is maybe, again, a good thing that the robots are making the gowns. Uh, I wouldn't want to do that all day. In fact, during the during the pandemic, I was packing face masks. No, it was, it was gowns. It was gowns. Everybody was helping out. And uh, I, I think I lasted about three days where I was like, finally was like, I can't do this anymore because it's just so repetitive, right? To, taking the gown off the assembly line, you know, folding it the same way every time, putting it in and packing it. It's just very monotonous in if you're an old guy, you get RSI really quick. And <laughs> so, should be a machine for that, shouldn't there? <laughs> well, there is now. <laughs> so, sounds like you guys are humming along real nice. There has to be some challenges that you're still dealing with. Oh, yeah. No, there is. I mean, and it's the same ones that I think a lot of shops deal with. Um, you know, we desperately want to paint the walls in here. I think we, we're looking at a new roof at some point. So there's there's stuff like that. There's also challenges, I think, though, that other people may not be encountering. One of the biggest challenges we have here, strangely, is provincial government procurement. So this is going to be a little bit complicated, but I'll do my best to explain it. Please. So the Ford government is very keen on Ontario first. You know, they've had press conferences about it. It's their slogan. At the, federal, at the provincial government level, their procurement mandates, you have to buy Ontario first. So if you're the Ministry of Transportation and you want new signs for the 401, you got to go look for an Ontario company to do it. And if no company exists, you can expand your, your search. The, the challenge we face is that hospitals who are spending taxpayer dollars, they're 100%, well, almost 100% funded operationally through the Ministry of Health, they're not beholden to the same procurement guidelines. So hospitals do all of their buying through something called a shared service organization or SSO. School boards do the same thing. A uh, SSO is bound by the broader public sector procurement guidelines. It's a different piece of legislation. And in that legislation, there is no mention of Ontario first. And so we have a bit of a disconnect here in Ontario where the premier is talking Ontario first. They're promoting Ontario businesses. But the biggest, our biggest market here is a hospital. There's nobody in the public who's buying an isolation gown. It's hospitals. And those hospitals, as soon as they could, went back to their pre-pandemic supply chains, which come out of Asia. Part of it is because it's cheaper. Well, that's pretty much the biggest reason, I would think. It's Part of it is because it's what they do. It's, uh, they've never really looked beyond the product lineup that's being offered to them by these big companies like Cardinal Health, Medline, that source all of the medical devices and things that go into hospitals. And so for us, we, I think we thought, well, we're going to have a captive audience here because here we are, an Ontario company, making a, a product right here, superior product, uh, safer product, and it's a little bit more money because we don't have the volume but it's it's pretty competitive and uh we can't we can't even get in the door we can't even get a meeting with a hospital buyer because they won't they're not allowed to talk to you so we've been spending a lot of time talking to the province about this challenge and you know i think what we see here is there has to be some kind of language change if we're going to actually sustain or have a sustainable ppe manufacturing base in canada or in ontario Without it, without that change, I don't know who our market is because if we can't sell to the hospitals, 
and we have to move to America to sell to Americans. Where who are we going to sell our PPE to? Now we have a a prime minister and a premier who both recognized how important domestic manufacturing is, domestic PPE manufacturing is strategically. It's a it's literally it's our children need it because you know our, we needed it and we didn't have it you know like two years ago. So we need it. They spent 180 million dollars propping it up. We didn't. We didn't take any of that money, but other companies did. They received 100 million dollars, 180 million dollars, just provincially to manufacture PPE. Well, as soon as the contracts ended, there's nothing left, and a lot of those companies are going bankrupt. And it's a that's a real challenge. I think it's a, and I believe it's a disconnect. Simply that, but it's difficult to get all of the bureaucrats and elected officials together in a room to understand it and then do something about it because otherwise it's going to go away. We're okay because we were lucky enough, smart enough to make take the steps, look for new opportunities, and, and think we have one now in the States, which is why we're thinking we might have to move there. Not the whole company, obviously, but we're going to have to set up a medical division in America to, to answer this RFP. Your sentiments echo what was said by George Irwin from Capham. Are you familiar with Capham? Yeah. You're, you're, you echoed his sentiments almost exactly. There is, there does seem to be a bit of a paradox between, you know, we want it made here. Okay, well, it's going to cost a few cents more. Oh, well, then what do we... Well, the beauty is it doesn't have to. So here's the thing. It, it, again, it doesn't have to cost a few cents more? No, actually, no. We could, we could probably beat Asia if uh, we could get the stars to align. Go so on. If we could, for instance, uh, secure a, a good long-term contract for making isolation gowns, let's say for the provincial government's pandemic resupply, stockpile resupply. So, and they say to us, okay, Harbor, we need, and the numbers are astronomical. People don't realize the volume here, but so as an example, Canada goes through 8.7 million isolation gowns a month, a month, All right? It's a lot. So, you know, you got to figure at least a third of those are in Ontario based on our population density. So, if the province came to us and said, look, you know, we need to do this. We'll have an RFP. We'll get you to quote. Well, it's Ontario first at this point because it's the government, Ontario government making the procurement, not a hospital or a shared service organization. So we're guaranteed to win. Who's can, who can compete? Nobody can compete. So we win a large-scale competition. Now we're manufacturing for the government. We've got, let's say, let's say a million gallons a month. Well, now we can offer hospitals a a pretty good price point. And we can already offer the province an excellent price point because the first contract was federal. So of course we had to build in the cost of standing up the plant into the cost of the gowns that were delivered. We don't have to do that this time. So our prices go come down. If we get significant volume out of the province, if we win the RFP that eventually will come, we're able to then go and negotiate a better price point on our material, which means we can keep reducing costs. Meanwhile, the the machine builders in us, the the engineers and all the other guys on the floor, they keep making these these robots faster. Like we spent a, a solid year improving their cycle time, at working all the bugs out of the system. And the faster they can go, the more gowns they can make, which reduces our costs further. So now we believe we fully believe that at some point we're going to reach that synergy where we're making a superior gown as cheap as or cheaper than Asia can supply. We can we can certainly get to a point, we just wanna be a player in that in that market space. And, not the, and this is the difference for our company too, and part of the reason why 
is so interesting, I guess, because unlike some of those other PPE manufacturers who have had to close their doors, we don't have to because we do other things. The PPE manufacturing, we're committed to it, but we don't have to live off of it, which is kind of where we're at at this point. We're able to take the time to fine-tune, you know, develop new processes, look at the programming, make them faster while we do other things, while we build for nuclear, you know, while we seek out new defense contracts. So maybe going back to your first question, that's part of the answer is diversification of both your customer base, but even maybe what you do. Maybe you look at a way to build a solution for something that doesn't exist yet and just be real smart about which one you choose because you want to make sure it's probably one that's going to happen or you're going to need in the future. Maybe it's space. It could well be. You know, as you, we were talking prior to the, the podcast, you were talking about how the technology or the manufacturing base exists in Ontario, probably to have a, an Ontario space program. It does. Uh, yeah, satellite makers, rocket makers. Um, it's all here. Yeah. Yeah, you never know. It's, uh, it's such a difficult and challenging thing, but you know, maybe the we talked about diversification of this workforce too. That might help, I think, where you'd have different minds. You know, if you, all you've done is automotive for 20 years, it might, be, it might be difficult to imagine anything else. But, yeah, it's definitely there. Scott, I want to thank you for your time today. Hey, thank you. This has been, uh, fa- this has been excellent. I've learned a lot. And, uh, yeah, you are, you're an interesting dude. Um, I want to thank you again. And, uh, yeah, we will uh, – can we get a tour now? Absolutely. Yep. Awesome.